Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Have we been dealt another blow in this pandemic? Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, all things COVID, weighs in. And with opening up and loosening restrictions, we are going to be dating in real life again. Logan Yuri, dating coach, helps you do it right. And June is Stroke Awareness Month, and you have to be fast. Tune in to learn what I mean by that. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Have we been dealt another blow? It's a race between the variants and the vaccine, and I do hope Canada will fare thee well and get going on those second doses. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. I am Maureen McGrath, your host, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator, and it is my pleasure to be here with you this evening. If you'd like to be a part of the show, please give me a call. The number to call is one 9898 That's one 877 You can text me there as well or email me in at at Although we cover a variety of health subjects on this program, the show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. Tonight on the program, we are going to be talking about stroke risk and COVID, dating in the real world. It's like Lars and the real girl. Why you should see a therapist and, and why it's never too late. And also the time when your brain shuts down. And <clears throat> sex, of course, because there's always a dose of sex talk or two on the program. So put the kidlets to bed, gra- grab a cup of tea or your lover if you have one, because we've got lots to talk about tonight. But right now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. He's an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba in viral pathogenesis, pathogenesis in the Department of Medical Microbiology, and he studies emerging and re-emerging viruses. You've heard his voice before. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening. I have to say that Kidlet has now become part of the uh, Kinderchuk lexicon in our household. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Excellent. One of my favorite words. <laughs> um, and uh, Delta, yes. <laughs> most unfortunately, has become uh, a favorite word in our home as well. Um, have we been dealt another blow? I mean, really, between lockdown and loosening up and loosening the restrictions, and now we have something new to worry about As if we look to the UK, the US, and of course, look no further than our own backyards here in Canada because there does seem to be the Delta variant taking hold and potentially wreaking havoc on our hope. Yeah, the, you know, certainly the, the virus has dealt us, uh, you know, yet another joker card with, uh, you know, with what it's done next. But, you know, we, we've got to take this, I think, for, with a little bit of perspective, right? So when we look at, at Delta, the one thing we have to consider is that as compared to say, you know, the, the late fall, early winter period when B117, the alpha variants and, and the other variants emerged, we now have a lot of people that are vaccinated. So certainly, even though we do see a decrease in the effectiveness of, uh, of vaccines with one dose against Delta as far as symptomatic disease, we still see really good protection against hospitalizations. We're seeing about 70% uh, protection, uh, you know, in, in that regard. So I think for us, we have to look at this from the perspective that, yes, this is a, you know, a variant that is more transmissible than the last more transmissible variant of concern that, that wreaked havoc across the country. Um, but we're in a different situation. So we, we can, I think, you know, take some solace in, in that, that this will look like a different wave if it actually becomes a wave. But at the same time, we have to consider there's a lot of people that still aren't vaccinated. So when we talk about this idea of like, you know, 30, you know, was it 35 percent of Canadians that are still lacking a first dose? Well, that's, you know, that's millions of people. Um, so when we think about a variant that, you know, can can transmit at a higher rate. We've got to think about how to reach those communities where we actually have people that could get vaccinated and so far have not been able to or who have chosen not to. Absolutely. Um, in the case of the Delta, it does have lower vaccine effect- efficacy. Is that correct? One dose is just not enough. One dose is not enough. And, and again, this is, you know, this is the same thing that we've been hearing over and over again, right, is that the effectiveness of the vaccines 
ultimately are based on what we see with two doses. We see this idea of 90 to 95% protection with the mRNA vaccines and even with uh, the Oxford vaccine in the UK. This is all based on getting two doses out. So one dose has actually been pretty good so far, but it hasn't been where we need to be. And to me, there's there's another aspect of this we kind of continually forget about, which is there's the protection from severe disease. There's also the protection from getting infected. And that's one of the things that I don't think we talk enough about, where if we get that second dose, we actually do reduce the, the potential for transmission by reducing our own ability to get infected. But we have to get that second dose to get to that point. And as you mentioned, some people are still very vaccine hesitant. Uh, there's millions of people across Canada who have not had their first dose. And I imagine a lot of those people are afraid, uh, quite frankly. I know somebody who just recently uh, got her first dose and was in, in the States and was actually eligible months ago, but was afraid to because she knew somebody who was obese and a smoker uh, who had died after getting the vaccine, she said. But she, but cause, correlation does not necessarily mean causation. But a lot of people are afraid of the vaccine. They're afraid. They think that they were developed so quickly. That's their perception. They don't think they're that effective. And they wonder what's in the vaccine. So I think that's a good question. What is actually in the vaccine? Is this Does this mean that the government is ins- installing a chip inside of you? I actually don't even think it's the government who's been following us on our phones or, or listening in. It's Google. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's go back to what is in that vaccine? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the vaccine, right? So when we look at the mRNA vaccines, we literally are getting the direct blueprint for how to create what's called the spike protein. It's a viral protein. It's what our immune system uses when it identifies the virus um, to to start building antibodies and start building that long-term response. So the mRNA vaccines are basically telling your cells, here's how to build that protein. Here's basically the amino acids that you need to put together in the specific order to get that spike protein, which is not the virus, which is just the protein, but will be uh, very immunodominant and will present a, a long, uh, you know, very, a very good, robust immune response. The adenovirus vaccines, a little bit different. This time they're using a DNA backbone uh, on, on the adenovirus, which is a cold-like virus, which we, we've been researching for years, which is part of one of the Ebola vaccines that's been licensed. They're using that at, basically to an activated virus. They're basically inserting the spike protein DNA gene into the adenovirus. They deliver it to cells. And now because it's DNA, it's a little bit more stable. So still just getting that spike protein uh, uh, DNA, which will then be turned into mRNA, which will then be turned into protein. But it gives you added stability. So when you think about this idea of moving vaccines out to underserved communities or out uh, internationally, we have something that's more stable at, at, you know, at less cool temperatures than what the mRNA vaccines are. So really, at, at, at either vaccine um, technology is getting you to the final endpoint, which is the spike protein, which is what your immune system recognizes. So realistically, your antibodies are, are going to, to be developed towards the same thing with, uh, or to, to the same antigen with, with both, both types of vaccine technologies. Absolutely. Um, Now, you might be listening out there tonight and you might be vaccine hesitant. You might be nervous uh, to get the vaccine. You may have heard something. You may not have enough information. If you have any questions at all, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Vaccines are our way out of the pandemic. Now, Dr. Kinderchuk, I'd like you to uh, hang on the line because we're going to go to break, but I want to talk to you about development of vaccines. They typically take, about how long do they take to go from preclinical trials to phase three? Yeah, and in the past, it was about 10 years, and we've been able to do this in under 12 months. So certainly, it, it, we, we had a lot of information to build off of, and that's why uh, I think you saw so, you know, so many things kind of come together in such a quick amount of time. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. We're talking all things COVID. Uh, Dr. Kinderchuk, thanks for hanging on the line. I have an email here. Dear Maureen, would you please ask Dr. Kinderchuk 
why we had the issue with the outbreak at Foothills Hospital in Calgary. It is my understanding that some of the healthcare workers and some of the patients who were sick were double vaccinated. What's going on? Yeah, great question, Thanks, right? Jason, so, <laughs> no, so, so one of the things we need to think about, uh, certainly with these vaccines, is that when we talk about efficacy, when we talk about you know how great they are, they're not 100%. Right. So when we think about the fact that, you know, we see 90 percent or, or, you know, 80 plus percent um, efficacy and effectiveness against uh, against the Delta variant that's the, you know, that at least been reported coming out of the UK, we have to consider that certainly we're not seeing 100. So there is still potential for, for people to get disease. Um, but we know that we're going to see a significantly less uh, or, or a lower amount of people that, that get infected. Then we get into the position of saying, okay, when we're looking at vaccinations, when were those vaccinations distributed? Um, how long post-second vaccination uh, has that person been or those individuals been? And then as well, what are the demographics or the underlying health um, uh, standards for, for those people. So would we expect that they would have a robust response or do we see people that actually would fit into people that may not have, uh, you know, that, that robust for response? Because we know that certainly people that are older um, may not have as high of protection or get as high of antibody levels as say somebody that's younger, even with two doses. So I think that there's still a lot that, that needs to be, um, you know, kind of teased apart for that. With this particular variant, I, I would lean back, though, and say, you know, the data that we get at the very least from from the UK, from, from their monitoring, as well as what we've seen, at least from the neutralization studies that have been done uh, in the lab looking at antibodies, the vaccines still look to be effective. But we know that we have to get those two doses um, to, to get full, you know, at least some segment of, of full protection for this. Absolutely. But a new story like that will actually make the vaccine hesitant person more hesitant. And and one of the things is that people feel that these vaccines just came out too quickly. They were fast tracked um, versus being expedited. Can you explain the difference between those two? Yeah, there's a big difference, right? And listen, Dr. Florian Kramer had put out just a, a beautiful summary of this in, in, I think, September of 2020 uh, in, in a review talking about the, the difference. So when we look at fast track, we're looking at, you know, something that has, you know, basically been able to kind of, you know, sift through loopholes to be put out and, and, and you know, basically developed in a record amount of time, but also by exploiting different, different loopholes that, that have been presented. Expedited is a little bit different, right? So when we look at these vaccines, when you look at the timelines, and specifically the ones that, that Florian had presented in, in one of his figures, he overlapped the clinical trials, the preclinical development, and then all the, the, you know, the post-licensure marketing and, and um, certainly you know, manufacturing of doses. And he put them on the timeline. And what you see very quickly is you get a perspective of where they actually were able to minimize time. So preclinical development, listen, mRNA vaccines had about three decades of, of preclinical development where they had been used for, for other, uh, you know, other vaccine purposes or, or other investigations. So we weren't actually starting necessarily from square one. We were with a new virus, but we had a technology that had been developed. Same thing with adenoviruses. They'd already been licensed for Ebola. They already were being viewed for a lot of other viruses um, and other vaccines. So that segment of preclinical development was vastly decreased. Then you get into the, phase, the clinical phase trials. What we saw was that there was some overlap of basically phase one and phase two, where there was a constant uh, release of, of information back to uh, the oversight agencies and back to the independent monitoring boards so that they would get data on a rolling basis rather than waiting till the end of each phase to get that distributed and then you know, try and, and view that. And then, of course, in manufacturing, all of the pharmaceutical companies, rather than waiting to start manufacturing when things were licensed, they actually fast-tracked that so that they would start manufacturing during the, the clinical uh, phases of, of development. So what you had were a lot of companies were actually taking a big risk that if their vaccine didn't meet criteria to be approved and, and hopefully eventually licensed, they would end up with millions of doses that they had sunk money into that eventually would, would go to nothing. So all of those things took a significant amount of time off this process. And I think that's what's important to look at when you look at the numbers of people that were investigated, the people that were involved in, in the clinical trials, the criteria that were used. All of these things were the exact same quality as what we see being used for, for other vaccines and drugs that ultimately are licensed and, and approved. 
And this really was a global effort with many researchers and scientists working on this simultaneously. Um, yeah. How worried are you? <laughs> how worried are you uh, for Canada in particular that uh, we don't have that many second doses into arms and the Delta variant is looming and also some of the restrictions are being lifted. How, how concerned are you with that? Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that I, I haven't had conversations with people, you know, kind of over the last few days about, you know, where where we sit with this. I think there are a lot of people in, in certainly in, in the healthcare profession and in, in, in infectious disease research that are concerned about the fact that we're talking about rolling back restrictions when we have a low number of second doses, in particular, when you look at the UK, which has you know, actually really high second dose vaccinations. Um, but they're already talking about, you know, actually pushing back their reopening by about a month because of their concerns about Delta. So I'm, I'm concerned about it. I think we have we're good. You know, we're getting good protection. Um, we've got to figure out how to get to, you know, first doses out to underserved communities and areas where we've seen hesitance. Um, but we have to get second doses rolling. And to me, it's about accessibility. We've got to get past this idea of, okay, well, we'll do clinics between, you know, 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Well, a lot of people work during that time period mm-hmm. or can't get childcare um, or live in areas where they can't get into those clinics. So how do we move vaccines out to make it accessible to individuals so that they aren't actually being put out? have to go and get the vaccine let's actually bring it to the community so i i think we're moving in that direction um time is ticking but I, but i hope we're going to start picking it up especially in areas where we see delta circulating absolutely and uh you know you, you give me a good idea in terms of a mobile vaccination we've done yeah. it before uh mobile units heading out into the communities but i completely agree with you uh, dr kinderchuk thank you so much once again for joining the program and uh hope the kid lit is doing well <laughs> Tonight. <laughs> we're we're it on is day 15 of quarantine, so we're getting better. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> but it's at least in bed. <laughs> anyway, yes, thanks so yes. much. And uh and we'll talk next week because you know what? I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about. Because <laughs> this thanks, seems Maureen. to Take change. Care. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. My next guest is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach. She's a Harvard grad. She studied psychology at Harvard, and then she ran Google's behavioral science team, the Irrational Lab. She now works with clients across the country as a dating coach and matchmaker. As the director of relationship science at Hinge, she leads a research team dedicated to helping people find love. My guest is Logan Urie. Good evening, Logie. Logan, how Hi, are you? Thank you. <laughs> I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> There's just so much I want to talk to you about. Uh, first of all, the book. It's a great title. Um, I also thought that I was running the Irrational Lab in my home, but I guess there's another one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have the Canadian version. Uh, okay. Yes, I do indeed. Um, and uh, and also I want to talk to you about uh, dating in the real world. So so let's start with your book, How to Not Die Alone. Uh, tell me, I, I'm going to read that book. I haven't actually, but <laughs> but um, I would love a copy. In fact, I'd love to give out a copy for um, one of our listeners if they would like to call in for that. It's my treat to them. I, I'll that from you, Logan. Um, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. But tell me about this book. I'm very intrigued. Sure, Maureen. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and I'm glad that you're going to give away a copy of the book. So the premise of the book is that relationships are really a series of decisions and you make good decisions and you propel yourself into a good relationship and you make bad decisions and you are doomed to get into no relationship at all or repeat your same bad habits over and over again. And so I really break love and dating down into these small decisions. Uh, Am I ready to date? Who should I date? Who should I continue dating? Should we move in together? Should we get married? And I help you make better decisions along the way. And, and so that's basically the premise of the book. And so I'm sure there's been a lot of people who realize that maybe they don't want to die alone, especially during this pandemic, especially if, I mean, loneliness was a big issue uh, for people. And, you know, as we emerge from this lockdown, 
uh, many people may want to find love. And if you want to find love, give me a call. The number to call is one 399 9898 I will send you this book. We'll take the fourth caller. Um, so also tell me a little bit about the Irrational Lab, and then I want to get into um, your the dating and coach and matchmaking. Absolutely, yes. So the field that I work in, actually I work in two fields, relationship science, the study of how love works, and then behavioral science, the study of how we make decisions. And so what I was doing at Google was we have all this information about how people think, right? We often are very focused on the present. Um, It's hard for us to make decisions for the future. We often act against our own best interests. And so if you really understand the psychology of how people work, uh, you, you can change their behavior and you can help them succeed. For example, we were able to help small businesses advertise on Google by saying, hey, you're not going to see success in day one. It's going to be a four-month process. And by really changing their expectations to the fact that it would take longer, we got people to stick with it and really find success and find new customers. And, and so I gather that that was a launch pad for the work that you do now as a dating coach and a matchmaker. So I guess before you can be a dating coach, you've got to matchmake, put two people together. What, what, how, does that, um, how does that work? And, and do you use science um, to, put, to ensure that the two right people end up together? Yeah, it's a great question. So you mentioned in my intro that I studied psychology at Harvard. So I've always had this interest in how people think. But my true passion is really for dating and relationships. And so over the last, you know, half a decade and more, I've been able to combine the two. And so I'm really taking what I know about how people think and combining that with dating and relationships to help people actually find love. And so matchmaking is sort of this sixth sense where you say, all right, what neurotic part of that person is going to match with that neurotic part of this person? And how do we bring them together? And, you know, I have done that in the past, but I think matchmaking is really a sixth sense that maybe I don't have. What I feel like I do have is the ability to sit with someone and say, I know your patterns. I've seen this before. This is how you're getting in your own way. And this is what we're going to do to help you get over that. I love that you mentioned patterns because people have patterns of behavior, don't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, since my book came out, I think the one concept that's really taken off the most is that I have this quiz called the three dating tendencies, and each tendency is an unrealistic expectation. And so the first one is the romanticizer, unrealistic expectations of relationships. The second one is the maximizer, unrealistic expectations of your partner. And the third one is the hesitator, unrealistic expectations of yourself. And so can can we dive into each of those a little bit more? Um, what does the romanticizer yeah, expect? So the romanticizer has a story in their head of what love will look like. They say, there's a soulmate. There's one person out there for me. I don't need to join a dating app. You know, my my person is going to find me and it's going to be romantic and we'll fall happily ever after. And the issue with the romanticizer is that they have what's known as the soulmate mindset. They think that love should be effortless. But as hopefully many of us know, love requires work. And so instead of having this soulmate mindset, we should really understand that you should put effort into finding somebody and you should put effort into keeping the relationship alive. And there's really no such thing as happily ever after. You're consistently applying attention and effort to make the relationship work. There is no such thing as happily ever after, as judging by the number of callers that we're getting for your book, <laughs> How to Not Die Alone. So, oh, that makes uh, me the happy, book, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, we've got Marion and Doreen and Kate and Mike, and um, I would like to, uh, the number fourth caller, however, is uh, Doreen and Thornhill. Is Doreen on the line, Leo? Oh, hello, Doreen. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I hope I'm the fourth oh. qu- caller. You you are the fourth caller. Oh, um, I love the book. Why would you love the book? Are you a romanticizer? Uh, yes. And I think <laughs> Aren't we all? it's so interesting that I would love to read about it. Oh, well, thank you so much, Doreen, and thank you so much for calling in. That's we'll get that book sent title. out to you. It is. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so very much. You're so welcome. We'll get that book out to you. Just leave your particulars with Leo. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. So we also have the maximizer you mentioned, Logan. 
Yeah. So, yeah. so the how does the maximizer it, think? Yeah, so they have unrealistic expectations of their partner. So this is the one who's saying, you know, I like my girlfriend, but could I be 5% happier with somebody else? And they're always wondering, is there someone out there better for me? Could I have this parts of this person and this parts of that person? And they're sort of waiting for the perfect person to come along. And they just think that they can always optimize and get something better. But the truth is that great relationships are built. They're not discovered. There's something where you have to find a good person, build something great with them, and you're really empowered to create the relationship you want. And so for the maximizer, the work that I do with them is to say, hey, you've probably already dated someone who you could build a relationship with. Instead of always saying the grass is always greener, how can you actually invest in that person and create the life you want? And um, isn't that Tinder, though? There's always somebody... (laughs) better to um isn't that online dating isn't isn't that what we we have a smorgasbord of people available to us and you think oh this one's pretty good but there might be somebody better it does that lend itself to maximizers i think you said this in my in my intro but i work at as the director of relationship science at hinge which is yes the fastest growing dating app in, in canada what i love about hinge and why i decided to work there is that it actually slows people down, right? So 20% mm-hmm. of people who sign up for the app don't even make it all the way through the sign-up process because they say, oh, this many pictures and this much writing, it's too much work. And we actually are proud of that because we're like, if someone's not willing to put in the work to sign up for a profile, then they might not be willing to put in the work to be in a relationship. And so I think that Hinge has done a good job at slowing people down and having them actually kind of see people as individuals and you can only like a certain number of people per day and there's no swiping. And so Hinge is proactively trying to get people to slow down and to really value each person in each match. Absolutely. And it's so interesting, your position there, which is Director of Relationship Mm -hmm. Science at Hinge, because there is a science to relationships. And I think people often think that they are unlucky in love or that there's nobody out there for them or that they're just you know, they have low self-esteem or they're just not doing it the right way or they, or they get into patterns. Can, does, how does people's, the patterns that people have in life impact their ability to meet somebody? Yeah, I really love what you just said. I couldn't have said it better myself. So people think, oh, I'm just unlucky in love. But what I try to do in my book and what I try to do in my work at Hinge is demystify love. So yes, love is natural. Love is organic. We're born knowing how to love. But you know what we're not born knowing how to do? Date or choose a partner. And so what I'm trying to teach people through my work is um, this is where people have common pitfalls. This is what you've been doing all your life and you should do something different. And so if somebody's out there listening right now and saying, it just hasn't worked out for me, well, maybe you're stuck in a bad pattern and you could actually make a choice to do something different. So if you're too picky, can you try dating somebody who maybe doesn't have all the parts of your checklist, but might make you happy long-term? Or if you're not picky enough, it's time to start taking yourself more seriously. And uh, we have the romanticizer, we have the maximizer, and then the third one again was the... uh, The hesitator. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. She is the Director of Relationship Science at Hinge, the dating app for people who want to get off dating apps. She's also a Harvard grad, behavioral scientist turned dating coach. She is Logan Urey, and she is helping us to date. <laughs> Thanks so much for staying on the line, Logan. Yes, thank you. And that's a good transition into the definition of the hesitator. Excellent. Tell me about the hesitator, please. So the hesitator is somebody who has unrealistic expectations of themselves. And because of that, they're always waiting to date. And so they say, oh, you know, I'll be ready to date when I lose 10 pounds. I'll be ready to date when I have more money in the bank. I have a more impressive job. I finally clean up my apartment and they feel like, you know, there's this magical day where they'll be ready, but that's just not the truth, right? We're all works in progress and nobody just wakes up feeling a hundred percent ready for anything. And you have to get out there and get better at dating because dating is a skill. And the only way to really improve on it is to practice. 
Absolutely. Um, if you have a, any questions for the Director of Relationship Science at Hinge, now's the time to call. The number to call is one 399 That's one 399 Are you a maximizer or are you a romanticist or are you a hesitant type of dating person? Now, um, the uh, dating is a skill. How... how does it come naturally to some people? Some people are, are they chronic daters? Are they, do they excel at dating? Yeah, it's a great question. So some people really thrive on first dates. They love the attention. They like being charming. They like the small talk. They like getting to know someone. So for some people, especially if you're extroverted, first dates are really easy. But maybe those are people who go on tons of first dates but don't know how to get a second or third or fourth or 55th date. So some people are really good at the early parts, but they haven't had as much experience in relationships. Then there's other people who don't love first dates, but actually once they get into relationships, they tend to stay in them. And so I encounter a lot of people who struggle with different parts of that dating journey. Now, for people who are, you know, always in a relationship or always seem to be in a relationship, they go from one relationship to the next. Um, I'm also talking about divorcees who may Mm -hmm. um, immediately rebound into the next marriage. Do you recommend taking a break from dating ever? Yeah, so there is some research on this that basically explores the question of, can you get over somebody by getting under somebody else? <laughs> and <laughs> I like that research. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, yeah. What they basically find is that it really depends what was going on in your last relationship. So let's say that you were in a relationship where actually for the last year, you were really get ready to get over it. It took you a long time, and you actually did your mourning and your grieving of that relationship while in the relationship. When that relationship ends, you may actually be ready to get back out there. For other people, you know, if somebody broke up with you or is more dramatic, it might take you time to process. And my biggest advice is that it's not that time heals all wounds and that you should just give it time. It's that meaning heals all wounds. And so what can you do to derive meaning from your last relationship? What did you learn? What did you want to do again? What do you want to do differently in the future? And so really crafting this narrative of your life and saying, Um, I want to do better next time. And so really taking the time to understand the lessons from all of your experiences. Um, And, you know, is it about chemistry um, more so than sciences that, that, that natural attraction, that attraction where we find somebody very hot, very appealing, funny, whatever, a a relief from the humdrum that we may be experiencing, uh, you know, in our, current relationships uh, and where we get this flood of the feel-good hormones, this release. Um, Is that a chemical reaction or or is this science? Yeah, this is something that I've thought about a lot because so often people would go on dates and then say to me, hey, I met up with this guy. He was great. We really got along. Great conversation. I'm just not going to see him again. I would say, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's so confusing. And they would say, I just didn't feel the spark. And so the spark mm-hmm. has sort of become my nemesis, this idea that you have to feel instant chemistry. You have to have that flood of emotions. Because, yes, I've felt the spark, and it does feel really good. It's a peak emotion. But a lot of times the spark fades over time. And so what I train people to do is if you're looking for a long-term relationship, understand the things that matter for long-term relationships. Understand the things that don't actually matter that much. And know that some people just are slow burns. It takes longer to get to know them. And those people often do end up making the best long-term partners. You just can't judge them on if they give you instant fireworks. Right. And, and you, may, you may get those instant fireworks, that chemical attraction, that chemistry that occurs. But um, as you say, they may, there may be other issues. They may have other mm-hmm. issues. <laughs> um, I was yeah. overhearing a conversation with some relatives today and, and somebody was saying, you know, he's getting married for the third time and I'm, I'm going to fly out there and I'm going to tell him no, you know, like, what are you doing? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's that, you know, that it can lead to issues. And and my comment was he, I think he might have some issues (laughs) that maybe he's not addressing. I mean, that could also be an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And so my, my big, my big things around the spark are one, um, the spark can grow over time, right? So sometimes we fall for people at work or people in our friend group, we just have to see them over time to really appreciate them. The second thing is that 
the spark is not always a good thing. Sometimes it's that the person's really narcissistic or charming and they just give you that feeling and you think it's something special between the two of you, but it's actually something that they give everyone because they're just very sparky. And the third thing is that just because you have a spark in the beginning doesn't mean it's a viable relationship. A lot of divorced people once had the spark. And so the spark feels great, but you need a lot more than that to design a successful long-term relationship. You, you make such a great point. So many great points there. That is just so true, especially in this world where we, we seemingly have a few more narcissists uh, in this world, um, or at least people with narcissistic tendencies. Logan, how can people get in touch with you or um, learn more about your work aside from purchasing your book as well? Where can they get the book? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the book is available where all books are sold. It's available um, in an ebook, a hardcover, and I, I read the audio book. And then people, if they're interested in that, the three dating tendencies, they can take the quiz on my website, loganyuri.com. They can follow me on Instagram at loganyuri. And of course, uh, I highly recommend Hinge. I really think it's the best app. And if you're sick of dating apps, but you haven't tried Hinge, this is a great app to actually find someone who's looking for a relationship. Well, and it's wonderful that they have uh, a relationship, a director of relationship science at Hinge. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this it. We'll definitely pleasure. get Thank you back, Thank you so Logan. much, Maureen. Thanks a lot. You're so welcome. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. On this hour of the program, we are going to be talking about uh, times when your brain shuts down and also why it's never too late to go to therapy. But right now, we are talking a little bit more about COVID-19. We're learning more about how COVID-19 impacts the brain and evidence suggests the infection may increase your risk for suffering a stroke. June is Stroke Awareness Month. And that is why I have invited Dr. Paul Winston, the Medical Director of the Rehabilitation and Transitions at Island Health in Victoria, British Columbia, to join me on the program this evening. Good evening, Dr. Winston. Good evening. It's such an honor to be interviewed by someone who is such an advocate for neurological rehabilitation. Oh, that's so Well, thank you for all of your amazing work, which I'm sure has doubled or perhaps quadrupled during the pandemic. Um, really appreciate that and really appreciate you coming on to educate the listeners about the risk of stroke. So first, I guess we'll start with, if you could please define what a stroke is. Sure. So a stroke is, as you said in your introduction, it's usually due to a lack of blood flow to the brain. And that's about 85% of strokes are caused by a blood vessel that isn't delivering oxygen. So the brain is damaged and shuts down. A small due to a burst blood vessel or an aneurysm or bleed from high blood pressure. So you can have damage to the brain due to lack of blood flow or because of too much blood in the area, which causes the brain to be injured. And generally the whole other side of the body can be affected in your speech and your vision. And so you mentioned something there, the risk of stroke for many people with hypertension. Many people have hypertension that goes untreated. They may not be aware of it. They don't want to take medication. How important is it for people to treat their hypertension to reduce their risk of stroke? It's a really important point because we have 50,000 strokes in Canada a year, but we know about 70% of them could be prevented with really good maintenance of health lifestyle uh, decisions, lowering your blood pressure, not smoking, eating a healthy diet, controlling your diabetes, um, not doing a lot of illicit drugs, which lead to strokes as well. So it's extremely important, even if you don't feel that your blood pressure is elevated, that you keep it under control because it's the number one modifiable risk for a stroke. Hypertension is the number one modifiable risk for stroke. That's amazing. And also 35,000 people, you said that 50,000 people in Canada suffer stroke each year and 35,000 of them could be prevented just by managing their blood pressure and living a healthy life? That's what the neurologists are telling me. So they really advocate on this, uh, we call primary and secondary prevention. That is incredible. And I, I do hope people are listening out there. We did learn in the pandemic that things like the conditions that you mentioned, hypertension, diabetes type two, obesity, uh, those people uh, were at greater risk for increased burden of disease if mm -hmm. they contracted COVID-19. So uh, for somebody who 
contracts COVID-19, is there risk of stroke related to their lifestyle, their modifiable uh, lifestyle factors, or um, is it just something that occurs in the brain? So it's it's a double whammy. And, you know, I live on Vancouver Island where we've had an incredibly low. We actually have never admitted a patient with COVID to a neurologic unit. I never met one in our hospital because our numbers have been so low. And right after as the pandemic hit, all across North America, the world, all the stroke patients sort of disappeared for a while. Going to hospital. And then there was a massive reverb. So all the neurologists were saying, I've never been so busy. The cardiologists, I've never been so busy. So people were not seeing their physicians, not taking their blood pressures, not able to get to their nurse to do a check. So we suddenly saw all these people who had strokes, a lot of it just because not getting good medical care. So a lot of the the rebound that we saw was not just in people who had COVID, it was people who just not being able to get to the doctor, not having their nurse check in on them. So that on its own, and then the increased stress that people have been under, the stresses at home, not being their loved ones, all those things that lead to lack, lack of people, socialization, that stress can raise your risk of a stroke. So what I'm hearing is prevention is critical in terms yes. of preventing yes. stroke. Um, and, and that health care, that, that primary health care, that ability to ensure uh, that people are taking their medications, managing their blood pressure. What is the recommended blood pressure in order to prevent stroke? What would you say people, first of all, I think people should know their numbers out there and they often will say, yeah, I know my blood pressure, it's, you know, a hundred, but then they don't remember that there's two numbers <laughs> that go um, in your blood pressure. So I know they don't know their number, but what are the two numbers that people um, should basically have? Sure, rate? sure. So with blood pressure, no, I'm not a neurologist, so I don't manage these, but, you know, we often say below 120 is the high number, 80 over the low number is where you want to be, but they generally will advise people to be under about 130, 140, but that really mm-hmm. changes with your age, whether or not you have diabetes. So the, the best option is listen to your doctor or nurse who's managing you and keep it under the target dose that they want you to. Absolutely. And how much does um, the stroke impact the Canadian healthcare system? How, how many dollars are we putting into this and, and how expensive is this? Not just the hospitalization, but I imagine there are issues because people have, um, you know, need different types of care after they've had a stroke. So it's about $3.6 billion a year. And you have to remember that 40% of people who have a stroke will have moderate to severe impairments and 10% will go to a nursing home. So for many people, it means that they will need dependent care assistance or be unable to work. And, you know, it's not just old people that get stroke. I have many younger patients from 18 upwards that have had a stroke. So it's, it's really a devastating effect on our healthcare system uh, that A, can be prevented. But if we actually enabled British Columbia to have the resources to fight it, it would be much less and we could do a really good job. And what are some of the resources that you would recommend? Um, so the resources that, that we to fight need it? is really good mm-hmm. interdisciplinary care. So I'm I in Victoria where I am. I have this really incredible relationship with the physiotherapists and occupational therapists and nurses in the neuro rehab ward where I work and on the acute care and the ICU. Great relationship and also the home care teams and the community therapists. So we really work together. Because the the way to treat a stroke best is to treat the stroke patient as their condition evolves in the hospital, or if they Uh are seen at home and go to home care, to let it known. Because they are really subject to get uh, some really horrific pain disorders, which means their arms and shoulders won't work again. And we have about Uh 300,000 Canadians living with spasticity, which is a condition where the muscles become tight and short and unusable so that you're not able to walk or you're not able to feed yourself, use your hands, dress yourself. Uh, so that as a rehab physician is my main goal is getting really early treatment so we can stretch out those muscles, treat them with medications, therapy, and stretching so that the deficits don't become permanent. And unfortunately, they often don't get brought to medical attention for about a year and a half. And it's wow. too late. And, and I, still do it. I, I should point, yep. I should just point out to people that you're seeing stroke patients on the other side of their stroke, basically. They've already had their stroke, and they're in rehab now. And so they are trying to recover. 
Yes, and in our healthcare system, we look at the sexy part. We say someone's had a stroke or a, a heart attack, and it's a big deal. But as you're familiar with the spinal cord injury population, I always say that stroke mm-hmm. and that hospitalization is a few weeks of your life. You now have to live the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of your life with the sequelae and repercussions. So we need to have really good interdisciplinary care to give it the optimal treatment and get these people back to their activities and lifestyles best as we can. That's right. I have heard that people will, it'll take about 18 months after a stroke for people to actually get to as good as they're going to get, if you will. Is there any truth to that? There was, but uh, my colleagues at UBC and I have created a new organization called Canadian Advances in Neuroorthopedics for Spasticity. And we have a mantra to create a world-leading program here in BC, in Vancouver and Victoria. And we've come up with a whole bunch of novel treatments and surgeries and uh, management to to make our patients um, a candidate at any age. And now we are really changing lives 10, 15, 30 years after their stroke. So it's been really exciting. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. June is Stroke Awareness Month, and my guest is Dr. Paul Winston. He's the Medical Director of Rehabilitation and Transitions at Island Health. He's also the co-founder at Canadian Advances in Neuroorthopedics for Spasticity Congress and a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in the Island Medical Program and the UBC Multiple Sclerosis Clinic physician. That is quite the resume, Dr. Winston. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you know my friend, uh, Dr. Andre Krasiakoff as well. He's a great friend and and Dr. Wilm says hello too. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) Well, I'll have to get together after the pandemic. Anyway, you do amazing work conducting research on spasticity, spinal cord and nerve injury as well, and complex regional pain syndrome. These are some issues that I don't think people realize that uh, people who suffer stroke may experience mm-hmm. after they've had a stroke. And you mentioned that you have 18-year-olds who have experienced stroke. I had a patient once who was three years old who'd had a stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is, why are young people having strokes and um, what are some of the deficits that they experience? Sure. So most young people will have strokes from any time from birth on. And at the vast majority of the time, it's due to a bleeding disorder in the brain. So they've had an aneurysm or a malformed blood vessel that burst and they bleed. Uh, Others might have a stroke due to some unusual cause, something happened, uh, a stressful illness where they didn't get enough oxygen to the brain. But mostly in the children, it's due to bleeding. Now, kids adapt incredibly well. So uh, a, a lot of my patients that may have stroked at 10 or 12, they become so incredibly functional side that they adapt much better than someone, say, our age. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and you, you also see young adults. And what's yes, the impact that COVID has had? Has, has COVID increased the risk of stroke risk, uh, the risk of stroke for individuals? Unfortunately, um, a few weeks ago, I was really upset on my consult service at the hospital because all I saw was overdose stroke after overdose stroke. So I saw eight catastrophic oh. strokes from overdose in a week. And I was actually emotionally wrecked seeing these people who had devastating strokes in their brain and most would be destined for long-term care because their bodies become so contracted so quickly and they get these really dysregulated hearts and really terrible consequences. Mm -hmm. But they're also the ones that we fight like crazy for. And we've really had some amazing stories of these people who were tied down and strapped for agitation from the stroke and are now walking out and going to visit their family. So it's been a really rewarding journey that way. That's amazing. And that's the work that you're doing through the Canadian Advan- Advances mm-hmm. in Neuroorthopedics for Spasticity. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. And so what are some of the things, what are some of the changes that you've implemented that are changing lives? So I've always been an advocate of this early intervention. So working with the therapist quickly. And when we see a stroke, we treat them. Our mainstay is physiotherapy and bracing. And we do a lot of injections of botulinum toxin. So that is mm. same people might know it as Botox or there's two other brands. And we inject it in the muscles to stop them from being stiff. And the absolute best way to treat is to do it right away before the muscles become fibrosed and stuck together. We can still treat them long term, but after about a year or so, it's hard to get the range of motion back. So these are the people that need to walk with a leg brace because their toe points down or the arm is 
are wrapped in, uh, to their chest. So you can't straighten the arm, you can't lift it over head. Or many patients in care facilities have hands so fisted that the skin is breaking down and they're getting ulcers. So right. we treat those as best as we can, and we do a really good job in Canada because the, the medications are covered, the therapy. But after that, when they failed treatment, there were very few surgeons that were willing to help. There's some great surgeons in Vancouver. But in 2016-17, my colleague at UBC, Rajiv Rebai, who's just an amazing doctor and a good friend, he invited me to a meeting in, in, in Versailles, France, which is kind of hard to say no to. And we discovered in France... They have this incredible history of treating these patients who failed to be treated. And what they did is they developed this amazing system to inject lidocaine, which is just freezing that you would go to the dentist uh-huh. or get your stitches. And you find nerves uh, on an electrical stimulator and you paralyze the nerve. And that means that if, it, if the muscle truly isn't contracted and tight, it'll pop open. So you could actually do surgery on the nerve. But if it didn't open up, you could uh, cut the, the muscles and tendons with surgery, or you could increase your dose of botulinum toxin. And it was sort of this eureka moment, like in Versailles, in this emotional place, and we went to the symphony. It was just, it was really kind of groundbreaking how I could never have heard of this, being you know, an expert in the field. So for the last three years, we banded together and recreated this program, but it was kind of old fashioned. They stuck needles through the skin with an electrical stimulator and tried to get the muscles to twitch. But we're quite high tech in Canada. We use ultrasound to guide ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I've redeveloped the whole program and we're writing a book on how to find the nerves on ultrasound. And then we stimulate them. And then we've been figuring out ways to deliver our botulinum toxin better. I work with some incredible plastic surgeons who now can dissect apart the nerves to whatever muscle I want in the arm and hand or chest and they can cut just the one nerve to the muscles we don't want. So we're starting to get hands to open up again, but leaving muscles so they can close again in very oh, that, selected patients. So we've is, been able to do that. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, it, it's incredible work. I Just quickly, we only have about 30 seconds left. Um, tight heel cords, that's, a, that's an yes. issue for uh, yes. a lot of patients. Is this something that can be applied Yes, but I, I've just patented and I have a big research grant. We have found a way to do it with actually just freezing the nerve with an ice probe at minus uh-huh. 80 degrees. And we've created our own protocol. You can only get it in Victoria. It's the only place in the world. And we're now freezing the nerves to the heel cord. And if the muscle doesn't have to be lengthened, we're getting people to walk without their braces again. So it, uh, it's, fit- it's a really novel time for us. Fantastic. I mean, the the work you're doing is incredible. Thank you so much. Definitely going to get you back on the program, Stroke Awareness Month or not. This is great information. And thank you so much for sharing, Dr. Winston. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.